Thanks to Grammarly for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Grammarly is a communications tool that helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear, and effective. Go to Grammarly.com slash fool to get $20 off a Grammarly premium account today. Also, thanks to our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, who are excited to introduce their all-new Rate Shield approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, Rate Shield approval is a real game changer, and here's why. First, Quicken Loans will lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. But here's the crucial part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm all alone. Well, Rick's behind the glass, but bro is off. So this week, I'm sending you to our member event in Denver, where Matt Argersinger and Aaron Bush spoke to a group of investors about investing in IPOs and some IPOs to watch. All that and, well, only that, on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. 2018 is shaping up to be the biggest year for IPOs in nearly two decades, which means there are even more opportunities to invest in the next big thing. So let's head out to our member event in Denver, where Matt Argersinger and Aaron Bush spoke in front of a bunch of fools about some of the more recent IPOs they are excited about, along with their general advice on how to invest in a company that has recently gone public. The market cycle, the the economic cycle, can have a, a tremendous influence on IPOs. We saw the tremendous number of IPOs, the record IPOs in 1999, and really good year in 2000 as well. But then look at 2001 and 2003, uh, really fell off the map. No companies were, given the market volatility, given the, the mild recession we had, companies were just really hesitant to go public. All of a sudden, there was much more scrutiny on companies' uh, financials. Investors started to look at more at profits rather than great stories and priced eyeballs and other crazy wonky valuations that came about during the uh, late 90s and early 2000s. And it kind of fell off. But as the economy improved, 2004, 2005, through 2007, it became another you know, decent time for IPOs. But again, here we go, 2008, 2009, uh, you know, financial crash, uh, bad economic cycle, IPOs fell off the map. And now we're in this, we've been in this weird period, really, since 2010, where IPOs have come back but as you can tell, other than maybe 2014, it's been a relatively you know, mild time for new public companies. Uh, and certainly the last couple years have been relatively poor. This year, it's been a little bit of a sea change. There actually have been quite a number of IPOs. Uh, in fact, as I, when I did this slide about a week ago, there have been 194 IPOs so far of at least $10 million. Um, and that already exceeds the 2017 total. So year-to-date through roughly October 10th, we were, were already vastly exceeding the number of IPOs that we saw last year. Um, in fact, and we're on target this year for these companies to raise $75 billion, which actually would be the second most since 2000. So in terms of this century, uh, 2018 could be the, the largest year for, value, for IPO value um, in, you know, since 2000. So what Aaron and I did, and we did a similar thing back in the summer, is we, we looked at companies that have come public this year. Um, we did, I think we did six. David Kretzman was with us. We did six IPOs back in the summer. We looked at, this time we looked at six again, one of which is a repeat. Um, but we, we have five brand new companies that recently came public that we're looking at. Uh, and so without further ado, let's go to our first one, which is Bloom Energy. And before I talk about that company, I'll just say, Dan Boyd, if you wouldn't mind playing, we have a, about a five-minute video that kind of 
goes into Bloom Energy, the CEO, and I think it'll be a good job of explaining what this company's about. My name is K.R. Sridhar. I'm the founder and CEO of Bloom Energy. The mission of Bloom Energy is to make sure that everybody on the planet has access to energy. When I was working the Mars missions and I was working for NASA, I was trying to figure out how to produce breathing air, water, heat, electricity, so one day humans can live on Mars. It dawned on me watching 50 million people coming out of poverty every single year on Earth. All these people want the same things that we all have. We got an immediate problem on planet Earth. What Bloom does, it produces electricity on site for customers in a reliable, affordable, and sustainable manner. On the outside of the Bloom box, natural gas, the gas that comes into your home for cooking, for heating, the same gas goes in and out comes electricity that comes into your main switch and gives you the electricity for the building. Inside of these Bloom box, you have these little wafers called fuel cells. One fuel cell like this can produce enough power for one light bulb. By taking fuel on one side, air on the other side, and producing electricity with no flame, with no combustion. So very little pollution, very high efficiency, no in-between steps, great power. Stack them together and build a brick. This cube, four inch by four inch by four inch, is enough to produce power for one average US household 24 seven, all day long, all year long. Now, put them together in a big farm. That can power a data center or a huge community. We are doing all that right now. There are so many different definitions of entrepreneurship, but the favorite one that I've heard is entrepreneur is somebody who knows how to do more than anybody thinks is possible with less than anybody thinks is needed and faster than anybody thinks is possible. What motivates me are big ideas. I wake up in the morning and I'm ready to go to work if and when I know that whatever I'm going to be doing is going to have a huge impact if I'm successful. My son, when he was nine years old, said, why not put Bloom Energy as the name? And I asked him, why Bloom? He said, because it's not geeky sounding. And most importantly, the reason you're working so hard is you want economies to bloom. You want lives to bloom. You want the planet to be sustainable where flowers will bloom. I had no reason to believe why we cannot be the revolutionary change for electricity. By the way, this video was from a few years ago, uh, and the company, uh, you know, has obviously, Bloom Energy's gotten a lot bigger since then, and of course they just went public this summer. And there's a lot to love about this this company, um, and you kind of got a hint uh, from that, but the, uh, the founder, K.R. Sridhar, um, you know, he's, he came up with this solution, um, and they've had a lot of initial success, especially in kind of primary areas like data centers, healthcare, microgrids. For some of the companies like they, that we were up there, Walmart, eBay, um, you know, what they serve as really sustainable, low energy, low, uh, very efficient, uh, backup systems for a lot of what they do. Um, and getting, having that kind of access to energy that's off the grid, so you, you know, primarily it employs either natural gas or biogas, uh, very low amounts of natural gas and biogas to create a lot of electricity. Uh, it makes it so that really you have 24-7 sustainable but also backup energy in case something happens with the grid or if there's you know, some kind of electrical shock. Uh, so 
Lot, lot to like. Um, I'll, I'll point out one, one statistic I really like is that the average like Bloombox, it's 125 times more space efficient than solar. So one of those, if you saw one of those boxes, um, kind of the one, the big ones that were outside, you would need essentially 125 big solar panels to create the amount of energy that's coming from one bloom box using a, lot, a small amount of natural gas um, with very low emissions from that. Uh, so, and you can see some of the largest customers, AT&T, Equinix, which is one of the largest data center companies in the world, if not the largest, uh, Home Depot, uh, Southern Company is a big partner of theirs, um, deploying bloom boxes really all over the country um, with their footprint. So, an exciting IPO. One that um, I'm, I'm kind of excited to watch and see where it goes over the next uh, several years. And we'll go to the next one. Let's right. talk about Eventbrite. Uh, so how many of you have used Eventbrite before? All right, that's what I thought. Yeah, so you all know what Eventbrite is. Um, for those of you who don't, think about events as a spectrum. On one side, you have you know small family, friend gatherings. You don't really need a platform for that. So far, my mom hasn't asked me to, to like buy a ticket for Thanksgiving dinner yet. There, so that's, that's on one end of the spectrum. And on the other end of the spectrum are you know, like the giant sporting events and concerts um, where the venues have a big contract with a ticketing company. Um, but there's a huge middle zone in between there um, for things like seminars, things like classes, things like wellness you know, activities fundraisers, um, all sorts of events that are, that are just in that perfect middle zone. Um, and that, that is where Eventbrite focuses. And so um, the platform is really interesting. It's modular so that people who are making events, they can, they can be flexible in how that works on their platform. Um, and uh, it has features such as registration, such as ticket purchasing. Um, it can tie in with all sorts of third parties like Facebook and HubSpot, Salesforce if you need. Um, and, and they really have taken um, really the top dog status in, the, in this industry so far. And just for some, some stats, just to, to understand how big the, this company has become uh, in terms of its, its presence in events, um, over the last fiscal year, their platform served over 700,000 event creators for over 3 million events in over 170 countries. Um, and they issued 203 million tickets um, over the past year, which is a lot of tickets. Not all of those are paid tickets, um, but it's still a lot of tickets. Um, and their economic model is pretty simple. They take a base fee and often a, a, a percentage, a small percentage of the ticket price. Um, and so as more people use Eventbrite, the more money Eventbrite makes. Um, and that's, those sound like really big numbers, and they are, but the opportunity is even bigger than that. So they estimate that in their top 12 markets, um, there are about 3 billion tickets that they, can, that they can go after. And so 200 million, 3 billion, that's still a pretty substantial jump. And over 1 billion of those 3 billion tickets are paid, and that is where they would make their money. Um, and so just looking at, I pointed out a couple metrics that are really important here, just thinking about their... Uh, how their economics worth. The first one is just the growth in paid tickets, because that's where the money is at. Um, over the past year, they've grown 59%. Um, so they're growing super quickly. And then they have a super high retention rate, too. And this isn't exactly a customer retention rate. This is closer to a dollar retention rate. But it's really important that uh, 
that those who use Eventbrite, Eventbrite is able to keep them in their system. Uh, and so far, so good. But those are the two metrics I would pay the most attention to going forward. And Eventbrite is the top dog, um, which we like to see, especially for rule breaker style companies. That's the first trait of being a rule breaker, being the top dog and first mover in an important emerging industry. Um, and I just called out um, a couple advantages that they have. One is the brand. As we saw, pretty much everybody raised their hand for having used Eventbrite. And so if you think about it, if now you are to go and create your own event, there's a good chance you're going to use what you have seen as a consumer. And that's a huge advantage that plays in their favor. Um, also, ticketing is a pretty big industry. And there are a lot of companies out there trying to get in different verticals and getting to different countries, just different parts of the market. But Eventbrite has the potential to roll up a lot of those players. In fact, over the past couple of years or so, they've actually acquired seven ticketing companies. Um, one of those is Ticketfly, which some of you might recognize. Pandora acquired Ticketfly um, for a pretty absurd amount of money and sold it to Eventbrite for about half the price that they purchased it for. And as an example, that gives them deeper footing in music. And so how they, they view rolling up um, and moving into other countries is is smart, I think. And this company produces free cash flow when others are still trying to, to struggle to, to you know, grow into their certain domains. The founders are Julia Hartz and Kevin Hartz. It's a couple, not bad. Um, Julia is the CEO, Kevin is the chairman. Um, fun fact, Kevin was also the founder of a past stock advisor recommendation, Zoom, which was later acquired by PayPal. So uh, I'm, I'm impressed what these founders have been able to do. And Aaron, you mentioned uh, you know music and, and competing ticketing companies. Well, so I'm sure a lot of uh, people sitting here probably own Live Nation or at least have followed Live Nation a little bit. What if I'm thinking about Eventbrite? What are the key distinctions between Eventbrite's business and Live Nation's business? Yeah. So as as I was kind of talking about the spectrum, uh, Eventbrite is right in the middle, so more middle size events. Uh, Live Nation is going to be going after blockbuster concerts. And so they have contracts with the venues that Eventbrite would never even touch that. So they really are serving completely different types of events. And I don't think Eventbrite might go into some music uh, more, but I don't think they'll clash too much. Great. Uh, so our third one is a company we actually talked about uh, in our last one, and that's DocuSign. I'm sure everyone in the room knows DocuSign and has probably used DocuSign. Actually, raise your hand if you've used DocuSign in the last year. Yeah, pretty much everyone in the room. Uh, it has become, I think, and well, it says right there, the world's number one e-signature solution. But really, I think it's a brand that all of us are becoming more familiar with. If we're buying a house, buying a car, refinancing our house, uh, entering into a contract, uh, it's really just become a very ubiquitous platform uh, and a, you know, a very successful platform. Uh, just came public back in April. Um, I, I like the way the, the founders and the, um, the executives have sort of framed the mission of DocuSign, which is transforming the foundational element of business, the agreement. Uh, if you think about how agreements, legal agreements, exchanges, contracts happen between corporations or individuals over, the, you know, over decades, the amount of paperwork, the amount of uh, you know, third-party involvement, the amount of uh, record-keeping. Uh, think about fax machines just blowing up <laughs> every day. I mean, the amount of paper out there that was needed to actually sign and, and you know, have official agreements uh, come into effect, DocuSign has just really totally revolutionized that whole 
that whole process. Um, take, not only taken away, of course, all the paperwork that used to be required, but just made it so much more efficient. Um, if you think about just the idea of, of when, you know, buying a house or putting an offer on a house, you know, the amount of pages of documents you're going through, and if you've used DocuSign, you know you cannot just fly, I mean, you shouldn't, but you just fly through that if you want. You hit next, you sign, you initial, you eventually, you know, it takes maybe five minutes to initial 80 pages worth of documents, um, and it's, it's incredible. Um, tremendous brand aware, awareness, I think all of us, as, as we know, we've used it, we know the name DocuSign. Uh, right at this moment, they have 425,000 customers, uh, and their customers, when, when I say customer, it's not just us, like we're, you know, if they counted us, we'd be millions, we're just users, but customers who use DocuSign to create documents, official documents to, to uh, get two parties to sign documents and have that kind of capability. You're talking anything from a single person office, small business, maybe uh, you know, a real estate broker, up to, of course, you know, investment, major investment banks, Fortune 500 companies that, that have used the DocuSign platform uh, to execute contracts. Uh, it's a big customer base, growing uh, crazy. They, uh, up until through last quarter, 650 million cumulative transactions um, have been done using DocuSign, uh, and I believe that's over the last 15 years since they've uh, since DocuSign's really been around. Um, their primary business is subscription. Their customers uh, on various tiers are subscribing to use DocuSign. They pay kind of to the extent they're using the platform, uh, and that it was that revenue was up 35 percent year over year, and I'd say that's, that's certainly the number you probably want to watch, the key metric uh, for DocuSign going forward. The founder is Thomas Gonzer, and he was a lot more involved with the business early on. He's, since, he's still on the board, though he's since moved on. He's kind of gotten into the venture capital business himself. He's no, no longer an executive at DocuSign, so it doesn't really have the close founder touch that it used to have, um, but I'm really impressed with the executive team. Um, if you look at the CEO, whose name now escapes me, um, uh, he, he's got a 98% approval rating on Glassdoor. Uh, the company professes to have a really nice, positive working culture uh, where people feel challenged, respected, um, and have fun working. So one of those businesses, and it is, I, it is a recent Rule Breakers recommendation, I think as of it is. a few months ago. Mm -hmm. So that's one that uh, certainly has got onto the scorecard somewhere. So. Uh, certainly check out that write-up, but this is one, you know, we're all familiar with. You might want to follow a little more over the next several years. Two numbers stand out to me mm -hmm. on this slide. One is 425,000 customers. That's huge. If you follow any other, you know, software companies, they're like a tenth of that generally. And so, I mean, they might not make as much money off of each of these customers, but just the fact that they have that many is a huge testament to their brand. So impressive. The other number, the recent price. You could tell we put this together uh, <laughs> maybe a couple weeks ago because the reason the price is like $40 now. Right. So but, there you go. But that's interesting. You get it a big yeah. discount. But yeah, it's, been, it's, been, it's certainly been a volatile time for a lot of companies just like this. So get it at a cheaper price if you can. Thanks to Grammarly for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Grammarly is a communication app that helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear, and effective. Their free version reviews critical spelling and grammar, while Grammarly Premium looks out for spelling, grammar, plus advanced punctuation, structure, style within context, vocabulary suggestions, conciseness, and readability for different occasions. I got to try Grammarly out, and it's cool. It works across wherever you are, so if you're typing on desktop, online, or mobile, it'll start offering advice. It's kind of cool. There's a Chrome plugin, for example, so 
um, I'll be writing an email, maybe in Gmail or something like that, and it'll start like offering me advice for what I'm typing. It also gives you stats, like how readable your copy is and how long it will take to read or speak it, and what education level should be able to understand it. It's pretty cool. So you can go to Grammarly.com/fool to get 20% off your Grammarly Premium account today. That's Grammarly.com/fool for 20% off your Grammarly Premium account. Also, thanks to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Let's talk about buying a home for a minute. Because of rising interest rates, there's a lot of unpredictability when it comes to buying a home these days, and it's causing a lot of anxiety with people. Well, our friends at Quicken Loans are doing something about that, and they're calling it the power buying process. Here's how it works. Quicken Loans will verify your income, assets, and credit, and in less than 24 hours, to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer. Then, once you're verified, you qualify for their all-new exclusive rate shield approval. First, they'll lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. Here's the best part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. Rate sheet approval valid only on certain 30-day purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records. Equal housing lender license in all 50 states. NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. Company number four. Zuora. I know this is in one other full service, I believe. How many of you are Zuora shareholders? Okay, cool. Good. A good number. Um, so, this is a cloud based provider of subscription software. So, they're the software that you know, powers other businesses, startups that want to create subscription businesses, or big legacy companies that want to shift their business model over to subscriptions. And appropriately, they sell their business um, on a subscription basis, too. Um, and if you think about it, this is a trend that is probably one of the most powerful technology trends that's out there. Um, as we enter a subscription economy, people are you know, buying fewer things, but um, going more the subscription path for a wide variety of, of goods and services. Um, so they're in a really good spot there. They have two flagship products, Zwara Billing um, and Zwara RevPro. Um, Zwara Billing really was their main flagship product for many years. They acquired another company that let RevPro um, also be a flagship service. Um, the billing automates a lot of just, you know, when you think about subscriptions, a lot of those uh, like tasks that go into managing that. RevPro is a revenue recognition product, so it deals with compliance and things like that. This is interesting to me because um, most software companies have one flagship product, but by having two, um, it gives them two ways to attract customers. So naturally, they attract more customers than they would have if they only had one. Um, and they're doing a really good job so far. Um, so those two flagship products are selling really well, and they continue to, to launch other products around like how to maximize customer lifetime value and, and, and other various aspects of subscription, eliminating churn. Um, and as I mentioned, they're doing really well. So they're seeing pretty impressive growth that I think is sustainable just because this trend is so sustainable. Over the past year, they've grown revenue 47%. That's naturally going to fall down because we made acquisitions and such. Um, but I imagine it can. it's one of those companies, when Tom said he looks for companies that can keep double-digit growth rates for many, many years. I think just because of the, the trend that this company is riding and their, how, head the, how ahead they are of other competitors, I feel like they have a good chance of being like that 
to. Um, if you look at you know, their top customers, over $100,000, they've seen 28% growth over the past year. But perhaps the, the statistic that's more interesting than that, since their 2016 cohort, I believe, um, of those over $100,000 customers, they've only lost one. So pretty incredible customer retention rates, um, which says a lot about what they do. Um, and their dollar retention rate is pretty positive, 112%, um, shows that once people get into the ecosystem, they continue to expand with their relationship with Zuora, expanding into other revenue lines, or often um, a business will just use Zuora for one service that they're trying out, then roll it out across the entire company. The, the founder is Teen So, I think that's how you pronounce it. He was the chief strategy officer and chief marketing officer of Salesforce for a few years. So he has a really impressive background. He owns about 7% of the company. Um, also, Mark Benioff, who's the founder and CEO of Salesforce, um, owns 3% of Zuora. So that's a pretty solid sign of admiration, if you ask me. Nice. And yeah, I think the, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's Zora's become a recommendation of Motley Fool Pro. And as you've, all of you, if you know Jeff and his teams, they love to look at sort of these companies that where there's lots of recurring revenue, you know, very low capital costs. Um, and this kind of fits perfectly into that strategy, for sure. Uh, all right. I think we're going with the fifth company. I think this is another one where you guys are going to be pretty familiar with the brand, probably even used it at some point uh, over the years. But SurveyMonkey... Um, and they, the, the official corporate name is SVMK, um, but they just went public less than a month ago. And, uh, you know, as it says, the world's leading online survey brand. Um, they kind of call themselves a pioneer in people-powered data, which they kind of say is the, the merging of big data and also personal data, personal interactive data, data that human beings, not robots or you know, social network scrapers, but you know, uh, people are really act actively inputting their you know, data into SurveyMonkey surveys. Um, that data is collected, stored, analyzed you know, to the 13,000th degree, um, and therefore SurveyMonkey enables businesses and their customers to make smarter decisions about products, uh, about their, you know, maybe about um, hiring, um, recruiting, and things like that. So um, the nice thing about SurveyMonkey is its, uh, its software really integrates seamlessly with Google applications, Microsoft, Salesforce, Slack, and so SurveyMonkey can just really sit right on top of those applications and platforms um, and really work seamlessly with technologies and people who are interfacing with those tools. Um, they have 16 million active users in 190 countries, pretty impressive number. Uh, much less are paying, but they have 600,000 paying users. Now that's, again, that scales all the way from one person you know, paying for a premium subscription to SurveyMonkey to Fortune 500 companies, and mentioning Fortune 500 companies, um, they have organizational level agreements with 71 Fortune 500 companies, which means that those companies use SurveyMonkey, SurveyMonkey's platform for some pretty rigorous um, survey applications, either internally or externally with customers. Uh, and those are ongoing subscription-based transactions. Uh, it's a you know, relatively small company, $13.75 recent price. I would say, as a lot of these IPOs, the IPO price was a lot higher. Uh, so this is one where that's come quite down quite a bit from its IPO price, but a market cap of less than $2 billion. The founder, Ryan Finley, um, he is interestingly not the CEO or chairman or anyone. He's the VP of design, which sometimes <laughs> tends to happen with a lot of these companies. You know, you have uh, an entrepreneur who started the company, designed it, um, and, you know, said, like, I, I love 
just being on the design end, on the, on the operating end. I don't want to be you know, an executive or, or a manager. And so that's, that's him. He is the second largest shareholder of SurveyMonkey. Does anyone know who the largest shareholder of SurveyMonkey is? It's kind of an interesting story. Cheryl Sandberg, that's right. And it's kind of a sad story. The reason, she's also the chairman. Uh, she's, I don't actually, I take that back. I'm not sure if she's the chairman, but she sits on the board. Uh, she's the largest shareholder of uh, SurveyMonkey because her husband was Dave Goldberg, who was the CEO of SurveyMonkey, and he owned an 8% position in SurveyMonkey. Um, and he tragically died a few years ago from cardiac arrest. And uh, she inherited, as, her, as his wife, she inherited uh, his stake in SurveyMonkey. So anyway, just an interesting connection, although a bit tragic. Um, Naive question for you. Yes, why it, I, I think I know what it might be. Why would I use SurveyMonkey if I could just use Google Forms? Good question. Um, I think with this, it, it kind of depends on stickiness of the platform, familiarity with the app, um, how much data I have as you know, my organization or as an individual in the SurveyMonkey system, and maybe I don't want to move away from that, and maybe I have a sense, I'm not a user, really a user of SurveyMonkey, but I have a sense they, they're probably a little more efficient and scalable when it comes to um, gathering data as opposed to Google Forms, but could be wrong. Uh, the, the question I thought Aaron was going to ask was the fact that one of the reasons SurveyMonkey sold off recently pretty sharply is because there's a company called Qualtrics, which is, if I'm pronouncing that rightly, it's, uh, they just filed to go public. They are a competing survey application, um, certainly less brand recognition, but Bigger company growing at about twice, a little more than twice the rate that SurveyMonkey is growing. Uh, so I don't know a lot about Qualtrics, but and they're again, profitable. And they're profitable, yeah, big big deal. So you know, and they're they're likely to come public within the next 30 days. So if you're interested in SurveyMonkey, you might want to check out Qualtrics too, just just in case. Okay, final company, final six. Here we go, Aaron. Elastic. Elastic. Uh, so I've been really interested in looking into this company. Um, it probably, um, ju just looking at it as like an interesting company, it probably intrigues me the most out of all of these. So Elastic is an enterprise search company. Um, so if you think about search, you probably think of Google just typing text into a text box, pressing enter, and a bunch of links or you know information pops up for you. But as it turns out, search is much more than just typing text into a text box. Um, so if you think about, you can search on apps, you can search on websites, um, you can search into enterprise data. Um, there's application performance monitoring, business analytics, security analytics, and search plays a role in all of those different things. So, so what they're trying to solve in being an enterprise search company touches a lot of different um, factors that a lot of enterprises have to, to deal with. Um, and so if you're still confused by what that means, let me just give a few examples for you. So how many of you have taken an Uber on your trip here? A few? Uh, so if you think about it, when you are taking an Uber, you are searching for a driver, and the driver is searching for a rider. Elastic helps power that search. Um, I won't ask this one, but Tinder is another example. Um, when, you're, when you're swiping, um, the algorithm that decides who you match with, um, part of that is powered by Elastic. Um, Adobe. I think, I, I think you should totally ask, though. How, okay. How yeah, no, people no. have used Tinder in the last... Oh, okay. Solid. I, was gonna, I, yeah, I, don't know what, I didn't know what the right time frame was going to be, so I shouldn't ask. <laughs> Sorry, Aaron. Um, so Adobe, um, Elastic helps power if you're searching for the right photos or fonts or... 
um, textures. Um, Adobe uses Elastic Sprint in a bit of a different way. Elastic helps them log billions of events per day to track website performance and network outages. Um, search plays a role there. SoftBank uses Elastic to monitor thousands of its servers um, to make sure that everything is running smoothly and to alert those who you know, work with the, server, the, the servers to help them catch any potential problems that um, rise up. Facebook, um, when you search on Facebook, Elastic plays a role. If you search on a ton of different online websites and it suggests a product to you based on your, your search or what you're looking at, there's a good chance that Elastic is behind that too. So search is permeating a lot of different things. Elastic is behind a lot of different things, a lot of those uh, features, the functionality that is out there. And it's, it's really interesting. So similar to like a MongoDB or Twilio, um, Elastic took a similar approach of um, Shai Bannon, who's the founder, I want to say it was 2010 that he, he created Elasticsearch, um, which, is, which he open sourced the technology, and he grew a pretty strong developer community around it pretty quickly. And as of now, um, there have been over 350 million downloads um, surrounding the Elastic stack, which includes Elasticsearch and all the different functionality that Elastic has, which is pretty striking. And right now they have 5,500 customers, and these are you know, a lot of the big names that I mentioned to you. Um, and as you can see, they're growing incredibly quickly. So over the past year, they've grown their customers about 80%. And perhaps just as impressive, their net expansion rate is 140%, which means that, um, you know, Facebook takes them as a customer the next year, they're doing 40% more business with them. That across the board adds up really quickly. Of course, these numbers will go down, but the opportunity um, to scale this up is pretty, pretty tremendous. Unfortunately, everybody who looks at Elastic seems to see that too. So the so the valuation is is pretty pretty high as well. Um, I'm sure this is this has fallen a decent amount again since we put these slides together. At this time, it was trading at about 25 times sales, which is super steep. It's probably around 20% right now. The company is unprofitable, so they have a lot of work to do. But what they're doing, the technology and their ability to to get these high valued big clients and to, to scale with them. I think it's, it's incredibly exciting. Um, Shai Bannon, he continues to own 12%, uh, I believe, of the company. So he's, he's here to stay, I think. Awesome. Thanks, Aaron. So I think that brings us to yeah, Q&A. We have roughly 10 minutes. So that's perfect. Uh, a lot of questions. And of course, if you have questions, go ahead and use the app. I'm going to do my best to try to take a quick look at them and see if we can uh, answer them. But First, general, a general question, Aaron, you, you can start and I'll, I'll answer as well, but what IPO are you most excited about in the coming months or 2019? Oh, that's a good question. Um, maybe Lyft. Hmm. Maybe. Um, so Uber, they're talking about targeting a $120 billion valuation. And, and I mean, the business is interesting because it is cars right now, but they're trying to create transportation as a service for lots of other things as well. Uber owns... Um, you know, other ride-sharing parts of other ride-sharing companies in other countries when it when it when it cut deals in the, over the past couple of years. But Lyft, um, I think their last valuation was around 15 billion. Um, so if you're looking at comparing the two, there there might be more valuation upside in Lyft. I know Lyft has continued to take market share um, over the past year or two, just as a lot of drama has fallen onto Uber. So. Yeah, I'm really interested to see what those two companies um, look like once they file, but Lyft seems maybe more interesting to me. 
I have to say Airbnb for me, because um, as an Airbnb host uh, over the last bunch of years, um, I have a, a pretty intimate knowledge of how they work and just how much money they make, and it's, it's obscene. Are there any Airbnb hosts in here who have hosted? Oh, okay, a few. Uh, yeah, so as an Airbnb host, um, you know, you, have a, you, you set a daily rental rate, obviously, for your property, the unit, or the house, and Airbnb charges the guest, your guest, anywhere from 8 to 12 percent. Um, that's what they take from the guest. That's the biggest share. And then, but from you, they take a 3 percent, you know, transaction fee. So in other words, Airbnb has both sides. Uh, and of course, it's a beautiful business model and the network advantage they have is huge. But uh, it's, I mean, it's really such high margin profit. They're essentially creating the network, the platform, uh, and users like me, hosts like me and guests, we do 99% of the work. <laughs> and Airbnb takes a incredibly healthy cut of that. And so it's a tremendous business. The, the thing with them, with Airbnb, and, and I, I've even seen it in my hometown of D.C., is a lot of, of course, a lot of cities, municipalities are, are kind of clamping down uh, on some of the abuses, some of the hosts that have kind of gone a little overboard with the amount of rental units they have. Um, it, it's kind of lost a little bit of the the personal uh, factor, the, sh the sharing economy that Airbnb is kind of spirited towards. Uh, and so that has an opportunity to really, you know, shrink the potential market opportunity for the business. But I still think it's an incredibly successful company, and I'm very excited to see them go public. Here's a good question for both of us. Of the six IPOs presented, which two would you invest in now? You want to take one? I could take one? Uh, yeah, let's do that. All right. I, I'm, I, and I'll just say the one I've already invested in is DocuSign. I, I, love the, I love the platform, the network effects, the brand recognition of the business, the, you know, the recurring revenue, very low capital cost uh, of the business. It's not without competition, and it's, it's, you know, it's, again, whether or not it is, remains the leading e-signature solution, very much up to question, but is the one that I've, I've really glommed onto. So. Yeah, and I'll just add to DocuSign, I'm starting to look at it pretty seriously as a potential crypto society recommendation. We'll see, but it's interesting what they're doing, because if you think about um, you know, just the idea of signatures and identity, that lends itself pretty well to, um, to, to crypto. Um, and uh, DocuSign has rolled out um, a blockchain solution internally, which hasn't gained much traction, because I mean, it just, it just isn't right now. But they also um, have, have recently rolled out in the past quarter the ability for um, signatures and these documents to be um, minted, minted securely to the Ethereum blockchain, um, which is a pretty fascinating solution. And if you're playing this industry for 10 years or so, um, it makes a lot of sense that um, a lot of how signatures um, and uh, contracts work will shift over to smart contracts in crypto. So it's good to see them ahead of the game there. Who knows how that'll really um, shape up, but Fun fact. Um, the, the company I would probably go with right now is Zora. Um, the, the tailwind just seems super obvious to me. Um, the subscription economy is not going away anytime soon, and it's probably going to be picking up for many more years. And Zora is you know, a leading contender to continue to, to get like the biggest and best companies, as well as the startups, because um, there really are both of those angles to it. For new companies coming up, if Zwara is building the brand, this is where those subscription companies will turn to first. And for companies that are looking to pivot and modernize their business models, and Zwara will also be who they turn to first. Plus, the numbers are good. Um, 
and I've been really impressed with their ability to, to scale their products. Um, so I'm really interested in Zora. Uh, this is a more general question. I like it. Uh, what is the best time, when is the best time to invest in an IPO? Uh, we can both take a crack at that. Yeah, so I would say like probably biggest picture wise, um, probably after the first year or so, because uh, statistically as a whole group, IPOs tend to underperform in the first year. Um, just because there's so much hype when they come out, and then it tends to, to fizzle away a little bit. Um, so uh, on, on average, that makes the most sense. And it also gives investors a good opportunity to start, you know, you get to see quarterly performance rollout. You can see if these companies will perform as well as they, they say they will in their prospectus. Um, but, there, I mean, there are so many great companies and great examples that you could tell from the very beginning just based on their growth, based on their profitability, right out of the gate, like Google, for example, um, or MasterCard, um, that on day one, that was a pretty great time to be buying. Yeah, I, I agree with Aaron I, I, on his, the first point we made, which is kind of waiting a year. And I, I think, if, if I, I might be recalling incorrectly, but I, I think David Garter at some point has come out and said he likes to see how an IPO does over the first 12 months. Looking back, you know, in his first year, did it outperform the market? And that can be kind of an interesting clue as to how the company's executing and how the market feels about the company. Um, unfortunately, I've broken that rule twice this year because I, I bought IGE when it, when it came public at the end of March. Uh, I bought it on its first day in the market. And then I bought, as I mentioned, I bought DocuSign a little while ago too. Uh, and, and, that's, and that's mainly because I had kind of, um, I had taken the time to really get to know those businesses, reading the S1 and, and getting familiar with the companies and of course the brand recognition. Uh, and so I felt okay going in. Uh, but again, in that first year, I think it's worth waiting, especially because obviously a lot, of, a lot of these IPOs have lockup periods as well, where insiders and executives have to wait. Usually it's six months after the IPO when they're selling. There's usually some kind of artificial pressure on the stock anyway. So patience, patience can be rewarded with IPOs. Yeah, and a fun peek behind the curtain, um, just because we were both on the Rule Breakers team and have you know, interacted with David Gardner about recent IPOs and such. He has a, a great analogy that he uses. Um, I remember I brought up, I don't remember the company, but I brought up a recent IPO, and the first quarter was not very good. And he said, they great wolfed. And I was like, what do you mean they great wolfed? Well, apparently, Great Wolf Lodge was an early Rule Breakers recommendation. And I, I went and looked at it, and it was one of the very few times that um, it was recommended straight out of the IPO. They had a bad quarter. David sold it, like, immediately. Um, so, so that kind of burned in my mind. It's like, yeah, maybe we should watch the first quarter, see how it does, because a lot of times it does not live up to the hype that was built in the prospectus. So we're almost out of time, and I know there were some questions we didn't get to, so please definitely... Oh, 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 oh. There we go. Yes. David G. David G. Thank you. I just stage. want to fill out the Great Wolf story really quickly. <laughs> um, and I see it's like 30 seconds. So this, but I still want one more question. So okay. all I want to say is thank you, Aaron. That is exactly right. And the main point, this was learned from Howard Schultz. Howard Schultz is the founder of Starbucks. And his firm was an early investor in our company. And so we got to hang and learn from Howard in some of our early days. And one of the things he said was he ultimately wanted the Motley Fool to go public. And so he was saying, you know, guys, so the biggest thing for going public is you need to know your next four quarters out of the gate. You have to have your business to a point where it's mature enough that you have it locked down. Howard is an intense guy, so this sounds intense. I don't even know if it's true, but this is what he said. He basically said, when you go public, that is your big moment. And so you need to make sure that Wall Street gets behind you. If you fail them coming out, they will walk away forever from your company. And so... 
Howard had this intensity around the idea of going public that you really have to have your business at a predictable state, which, by the way, I don't think we've ever had. I mean, maybe we're there now, although I don't think we're going public. Talk to Tom if you're interested. Um, but, but it was Great Wolf. I recommend it. I liked it. it um, and right away, their first quarter, they're like, oops, no, sorry. We've, we've su surprised. It's disappointment. And that, to me, said that company was just kind of going public to go public. They really didn't have it together. And so it was a quick trigger to exit it, which we very rarely do, as you know, if you follow um, Rule Breakers or Stock Advisor or really The Motley Fool. And of course you do, because you're here. So that's the story. It's ultimately the reason I wanted to come grab the mic was to thank Aaron for knowing that reference. And then to make sure that you knew that it was that conversation with Howard Schultz and what he inculcated on me at an, a younger age about how, so anytime I see a, an IPO come out and in the first one or two quarters, they've blown it, then I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking they, they didn't go public for the right reasons, probably. It's, it's unfair. There, I'm sure there are exceptions, but that's it. Okay, sorry. Back. Thank you, David. Thank you. Well, that's the show. It's edited officially by Rick Engdahl. Hey, let's have a disclaimer. As always, The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against the stocks we talked about on the show. Don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what you hear here. Our email is answers at fool.com. Join our Motley Fool podcast Facebook group or follow us on Twitter. Or you can also leave us a review. But most importantly, stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.